Turn off George tells you a story. In this story, there's a society where men and women spend most of their lives chained to their seats, watching some screen in front of them while all their needs are provided to them. Wait, you say, I think I read this one. Is this Fahrenheit 451? I don't know what you're talking about, says your friend, and continues with the story. Apparently the only thing these people do is watch the screen all day. There's not a lot going on, but they seem quite content. Wait, don't tell me, you interrupt again. Is this Brazil? Max Headroom? Something from Black Mirror? My friend, your friend tells you, will you stop spouting random words? I am trying to tell you something. Much like what you were trying to do now, the people in this society get a kick out of guessing what's coming next. Their whole status, in fact, depends on how good they are at guessing the next image on the screen. Some of them have gotten pretty good at it. But then a stranger comes. He seems a little lost in the semi-darkness and stumbles around. He makes everyone uncomfortable, stepping in front of the screen. Worse, he has the nerve to tell them this life they're leading is empty, insubstantial. Nobody wants to hear that. What's his deal? We are happy here. Can't get better seats than this, really. But the stranger tells them there's a better life than this if they'd only turn around and follow him out of this cave. There's a better world outside. A cave, you're about to say. City of Ember, maybe? But a look at your friend tells you this is an important moment in the story and not the time to interrupt with more wild guesses. The cave denizens are getting more and more upset by the stranger's insistence. Things get really bad when he offers to break their chains. We got no chains, they shout, and use them to drag the stranger down. Once he's down, they kick him and trample him. Finally, it's over. Men and women continue to watch the screen. They are content again. I don't know, Plato, you tell the man, for that's who he is. It's kind of dark. I mean, I like dystopian stories, but I like them more when they have a happy ending. I do not know what you mean by dystopian stories, Plato tells you. I was talking about your life. Welcome to Philosophy Universe, a podcast about science fiction, fantasy, and philosophy, and everything in between. I am Alfredo, and this is episode two. Can you escape the cave? Plato and the first dystopian story. If you ever had a philosophy class, you may have recognized this little story right away. With some embellishments, it is a version of an image that appears in Plato's most famous work, The Republic. It could easily be the most famous image in the history of philosophy. It was written more than 2,000 years ago. Philosophers know it as the allegory of the cave or the myth of the cave. Plato lived in the 4th century BC in Athens between the years 428 and 347, give or take, and is one of the best-known names in the history of Western philosophy. He was a student of Socrates, and the teacher of Aristotle, two other supremely important philosophers. Socrates, curiously, did not write any philosophical works. He just walked around talking to people. But there are many ways of doing philosophy. Plato wrote a lot, and I mean a lot. Consider this. He lived two millennia and a half ago, 2,500 years. He wrote by hand, 
using lettering that it's quite hard to follow because it's all in caps with no spaces and no accents and on papyrus. And despite all this, if you look at the collected works of Plato that survived, we are talking about 1,500 pages or more, depending on the edition. That's how much Plato was valued, that despite wars and civilizations coming and going, his works were preserved lovingly to this day. Unlike Aristotle, Plato writes using dialogues, which are like plays, some short, some many books long, with different characters having arguments. It's not necessarily easier to understand him, mind you, because sometimes you need to think a little more to figure out what Plato means under the surface. Not only did Plato write a lot, he had so many important ideas throughout that it's very easy, whenever you're having any type of philosophical conversation, to say, wait, Plato actually talks about that. That is why C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, makes one of his characters say at one point, it's all in Plato. What do they teach kids these days? It's all in Plato. But let's go back to dystopian stories. They became very popular last decade. After the financial success of the Hunger Games, everyone and their uncle began writing dystopian fiction. When I ask my students what science fiction they read, they usually come up with some of these titles, Hunger Games, Divergent, and so forth. But if you think about it, all these stories have the basic structure of this situation that Plato describes. There is a society that lives a very diminished kind of life. Some important basic freedoms are absent. People are chained to their seats in this story, but it could be something else that is chaining them. It could be that emotions are banned, like in Equilibrium or The Giver, or thinking is discouraged, like in Fahrenheit or Brave New World. Diversity is persecuted, like in Divergent. Creativity and joy are feared, and freedom is suppressed, like in all of them. Sometimes it's nothing so obvious. People simply live a drone-like, routine existence without ever knowing or suspecting there is more to life, like in Brazil, or a life completely consumed by consumerism, like in Frederick Paul's The War of the Merchants. There is perhaps a nagging suspicion that this is not life. But societal systems, entertainment, drugs, consumerism, gladiatorial combats, distractions, they ensure that none of this doubting will rise to the surface. Perhaps an elite is in the know, but they have convinced themselves that this is how things must be. The continuation of civilization demands it. And, of course, in many cases, the continuation of their privilege status quo. Individuals that deviate too much and push the limits are quickly identified and suppressed in force. Wait, you may be thinking, I may not be an expert, but I know there were no big screens in Plato's time. Now, if there's something you should take from this podcast is this, never underestimate Plato. In his story, the prisoners are chained so they can only look to the back of the cave, but behind them, some puppeteers have built a big fire, which they used to project the shadows of carved figures on the wall. So maybe it's more of a shadow puppet show than a movie theater. We are not told who removes the chains of the first prisoner, but we are told that it's rough going for him. To begin with, looking at the fire hurt his eyes, and walking on rocks since he hasn't walked for so long. There's a little independent movie called 2149, The Aftermath. It's a story of a kid who has not left his silo since he has memory, because of the post-apocalyptic situation they lived in. 
He's never had to walk more than 10 feet in any direction to get what he needs. The silo provides for his food, his entertainment, and he has to work kind of like remotely. So when he has to leave the silo, you can tell it's going to be very difficult for him. Back to Plato, when the prisoner finally makes his way out of the cave, he can't handle the luminosity outside. It is a slow process until he can look at things reflecting the sun, and finally, at the sun itself. But now that he can, he's inundated with the joy of living in this world, filled with wonderful things. Now he's moved by concern for his fellow beings, and he wants to go back and free them. But when he returns to the cave, he looks stupid to the others. His eyes are not used to the darkness, and he can't see the shadows of the wall like the rest of them can. People laugh at him. None of the people in the cave is particularly moved by his story. This is a guy who can't even tell which shadow comes after which. So the last bit is presented as a question. And if it were possible to lay hands on and to kill the man who tried to release them, would they not kill him? Now, maybe you're thinking, why would Plato write such a thing? It's useful here to distinguish between what is commonly called an allegory and a symbol. Both allegories and symbols represent or stand up for something else. In doing so, they emphasize or illuminate the quality of that thing. The main difference between them, allegories and symbols, is that allegories are very specific. The author wants them to mean a specific thing. Symbols, instead, are more versatile. A sword, for example, may be a good symbol for many things, strength, will, courage. But when it is found in the study of justice, it stands as an allegory for something specific, the state's power to apply the law and to punish. Again, a blindfold may symbolize many things, obtuseness, denial, self-destructive tendencies. But when found in the representation of justice, it stands for something very specific, that justice should be unbiased and not treat people of different social status differently. Speaking of justice, this is just what Plato was investigating in this work, The Republic. Plato learned philosophy from a very interesting man, Socrates. Socrates was condemned to death by the Athenians. Can you guess why? Yes, because he kept pestering them with philosophical questions. This made important people look bad, but Socrates wouldn't mind he kept pestering them in order to wake them up from their stupor. Do you begin to see the connection? Socrates himself appears as the main character in many of these dialogues. Probably the most famous of his dialogue is the Republic. Here, Socrates and his friends are arguing about this. Is it better to be a just person or an unjust one? Who will have a better life? The one who lives a life of virtue or the one that cares for nothing but their own selfish desires and who achieves all of them at the cost of stealing, backstabbing or murdering? This is a question that we definitely have to examine, but for now, let's focus on the cave. Close to the end of this dialogue, in the seventh book, Plato is examining the problem of education. Basically, you can have this good life that he's talking about without the right kind of knowledge. And this knowledge has to go beyond trivia, beyond just knowing facts from the here and now. Something more profound, more universal is needed. Plato inserts here this story, intending it as an allegory. It represents the various stages of knowledge, going from our experience of individual, visible objects to the much more powerful and satisfying knowledge that we reach in high thought and in philosophical and scientific knowledge. 
the philosophical and scientific knowledge, of course, would be represented by the knowledge of the world outside, looking at things directly, looking at the sun, while the shadows represent knowledge of trivia and things that are passing and not really that important for Plato. But here's another thing about Plato. He's a master at writing in many different levels simultaneously. His dialogues are like puzzle boxes that can be opened to reveal another layer of meaning inside it and another and another. Even if he intended this story as an allegory for something specific, he's already adding another layer of meaning by expressing his anger or his sorrow or his disappointment for what the city of Athens did to his beloved teacher and celebrated philosopher Socrates. Beyond this, the image of the cave and the prisoners is just too powerful to keep as an allegory. It has mutated. It has become a symbolic narrative that stands for many things. I'm going to mention now some of the ones that are most commonly brought up. The first one is the common warning of most dystopian stories. The cave signifies a group of prejudices and biases that keep a society locked in conflict and decline. Willingly or unwittingly, the puppeteers maintain the state of affairs, or they make it worse by doing what they do. They just keep people entertained. The phrase bread and circus comes to mind. The people have some fault in this, because they have become complacent. They don't ask the relevant questions. It can be a lot easier to let oneself be manipulated than to offer resistance. This society is in the end a puppet show. And some would argue that every society is one to some degree. This meaning emphasizes the role of the puppeteers and of thought control. The puppeteers may do this with malice or because they don't know any better, but they become in great part the reason why it is so difficult to overcome this state of affairs. A second set of meanings on which people focus when analyzing this story circles around the interesting detail that what is being watched are shadows on the wall. A shadow is something flat, devoid of substance, shallow. This reading makes you think just how easily it is for us humans to abandon our quest for things that are meaningful or deep or fulfilling or substantial or worthwhile. We're so easily distracted by entertainment and busy ourselves with things of very little worth. A decade or two ago, we could say that the shadows stood for, say, endless hours watching TV. Today, the shadows can easily stand for all the screens of any size that constantly demand our attention with the effect that we end the day feeling as if we did nothing but self-sabotage. All those precious hours in which we could have done some serious reading, soul-searching, relationship-building, making something creative or constructive, they all went away in what? Watching shadows. A third group of meanings emphasizes the plight of the released prisoner and the difficulty of what in philosophy is called moral conversion. Conversion means turning around, which is exactly what the prisoners in the cave must do if they want to experience a fuller reality. Turn around and start walking. But it's so tempting to fall back into the comfortable nothingness of the shadows. Facing the light can be harsh at first. Never mind that your feet are not used to the effort and the rocky ground may hurt and bleed you. In some of my classes, I ask my students to write a Socratic dialogue, applying this cave image to any situation they want. These themes often come up. Scenarios in which a person is facing toxic relationships, substance addiction, domestic violence, anxiety, regret, existential vacuum, and a multitude of like situations in which the characters written in the dialogue envision changing their lives 
but convince themselves that either there's nothing wrong or nothing to be done, it is the task of the Socratic figure in the dialogue to help them see that change is necessary and that there is, well, light at the end of the tunnel. There's perhaps a fourth set of meanings here connected with the third. It emphasizes the difficulty that there is and the danger in trying to make people think differently. And this is something, of course, that we see a lot in dystopian stories. It's never without danger for the person that is uh, awakened to go back and try to save their society. When the main character or characters find out the truth about the society they live in, they realize that they have a mission, that they have to be the saviors to some extent or bring some relief to the society. And this always comes with risk and, of course, adventure in some cases and tragedy in others. So you see, just looking at these meanings alone, this is a story with so much power to illuminate and to inspire. Sometimes it shows up as a symbol and makes you wonder if the author was aware of it. Think of Captain Pike in our previous episode. He has to overcome the illusions of the Talosians, there you got your shadows, in order to get out of a cave. Was Roddenberry knowingly referencing Plato here? But I've been talking too much in the abstract. Why don't we examine in our next episode a very important book that gets all these meanings together and more. In this story there's thought control, there's constant mind-numbing entertainment, and there's a character who wants things to change but doesn't know where to start. And he knows it's going to be very dangerous, just like in the cave. And there are also camera drones way ahead of their times, and flamethrowers and a nasty, deadly mechanical hound. Join us for A World Turned Upside Down, Ray Bradbury's Fahrenheit 451, in episode 3 of Philosophy Universe. By the way, Fahrenheit 451 by Ray Bradbury is just three chapters long. I encourage you strongly to get your hands on it and read it before it's absolutely worth it. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.